Hear the word of the Lord from the prophet Isaiah. The word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did we record that introduction, Vernon? I, I, when I'm having a really down day, I'm going to need to play that and you know listen to all those lies. But um, I, you've welcomed us so wonderfully this morning. It's already been just a delightful morning for us. Um, I am clothed in Tom Hanks's robe. Um, I'll have my own next week. I, I guess he'll have to you know have the musician pulled and the preacher pulled out of it and redoctrinate it with English uh, germs uh, after I've worn it. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, a preacher friend who I must confess I was at a meeting, I don't remember which one, told me that I had to ask Nathan Stone about his motorcycle. Um, so the, the word of Lakeshore goes out and around the world, literally. I want you to know that Cindy and I are so honored and so humbled by God's call, spoken through you, uh, to come as your transition pastor. And we're excited about sharing life together for several months ahead. Lakeshore Baptist Church, know that you are a treasured church in the greater community of churches. You are known as a thoughtful, prophetic, loving, and courageous church. And you've been that kind of church for well over 50 years. Not only have I heard so many good things about you, but your vote to call me is wonderful evidence of the trust that you have for one another and the trust that you have in your search committee. You voted to call me without even having met me. Now, that's a sign of trust. And I commit you to you to honor that trust as we go forward. I won't get everything right as your transition pastor, but it won't be from not trying. And may God give us all grace as we move forward together. I believe that in the Baptist tradition, the preacher rises up from the congregation to give a word to the community. What church better modeled that than you the last many weeks? Uh, certainly many preachers have risen up from this community to share a word week after week. What a beautiful representation of a truly Baptist tradition. We are all priests in this room. And it won't be any different for me. 
I'm just another one called up from the congregation. And that will be true for the transition. Through the transition, I will offer some prompts, but the work to do will be yours, not mine. I'm going in a couple of weeks to get some training uh, to maybe better help give prompts to you in the process. But doing transition work isn't about putting another app on your phone. It's work. It's holy work. It's the work of the community. And it will always be the work of Christ in our midst. It'll be hard, but I think it'll also be fun. May we always offer it to God as we all go forward together. Let's pray. Emmanuel, God with us, God of grace, evidenced in the coming Christ, God of love, evidenced in us every day. We claim you this morning, we claim your presence. May all that we do and all that we are this morning be a holy offering, sweet to your smell. And God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together be found acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Happy New Year. This is the first Sunday of the Christian year, so Happy New Year. I've come to the Christian calendar and the Revised Common Lectionary a little bit late in life. Uh, we did it, uh, some, we did quite a bit in Little Rock. We did a lot in the First Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. But I'm just now coming to experience the rhythms of the liturgical year, and I, I really like them. Uh, I love the, the regularity of things coming back. I love the way they're organized. Um, for most of my adult as an academic in my first life until I was 50, and even a little past that, I lived on the academic calendar. So come August, I'll wish you Happy New Year again. <laughs> and come January 1, I'll wish you Happy New Year again because that may not be the most important New Year, but it is for all of us who pay income taxes. <laughs> so let me say to you this morning, Happy New Year. It seems appropriate that we, the people of Jesus, who celebrate redemption and second chances, would have as many happy new years as possible. After all, we're all about new beginnings. Starting out with a fresh slate is our mantra. So today we start a new Christian year, a new year full of possibilities, full of potential, full of new opportunities, a new year full of hope for a brighter future. A new year with the possibility of transformation. A new year with a chance to start over yet again. When I was an academic, I, I loved getting over to start. I got to start over twice a year. You know, if I really messed up a semester, I could start over. Now that's true as a student and as a faculty member. 
Um, maybe I needed another shot at a higher GPA. Or maybe I needed another shot to do that class with a new syllabus, a new group of students. You know, it was all the students' fault, of course, that they didn't get that last class, that they didn't do very well. No, I, I loved the chance to start over again. If there was ever a group that might have wanted a chance to start over, it was probably the people of Judah and their king Ahaz. Today's text from Isaiah are Isaiah's words to that king and his people. At this point in time, the city of Jerusalem is under siege. Armies and swords and death and destruction literally surround them. All of that is joined by doubt, fear, anxiety, and apprehension. Their very existence as a nation is in doubt, along with their faith in a God who they've depended on to protect them. A God who brought their nation into existence. A God who protected them from their enemies. A God who brought the glory days of King Solomon and made them what they considered themselves to be, a favored nation. But the king has run out of options and is called in the prophet Isaiah for advice and counsel. I wonder what Ahaz thought of Isaiah's counsel. Isaiah says first that God will be a great and mighty and respected judge, that all the nations will come to God. Then he says this about all the nations, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Almost all of us have heard that phrase and remember it. I can hear Ahaz's response to that. Are, are you sure you heard the word of the Lord? Do you need to check your connection? Did you drive out of range of the nearest cell tower? Are you sure your email wasn't hacked? Swords into plowshares? Spears into pruning hooks? At the United Nations building in New York City, there's a famous sculpture of a very muscled man holding a blacksmith's hammer in mid-stroke. The object of his work is a piece of metal that he holds in his other hand. The end of that that he's holding is the handle of a sword, and the other end of that metal extends to the ground and is the blade of a plow piercing the ground at his feet. Anyone who knows this scripture passage knows exactly what the man is doing. And you can see that the work is hard, but possible. My dad was a World War II veteran. He served overseas in the Army Air Corps. When he died a few years ago, my brother and I were going through his things and we were preparing to move my mother into assisted living. My dad had several guns. He didn't get involved in political discussions about guns, but he just grew up hunting and he liked to shoot. My brother took most of my dad's guns, and I, I was glad for that, but there was one that I wanted. It was an Army surplus M1 carbine that he bought from the government after the war. When he bought it, the wooden stock was unfinished, and my great uncle Harry, who was a talented woodworker, sanded stained and sealed that stock for my dad. So the gun reminds me of both my dad and my great uncle. When I got the gun, I began to do some research 
I wanted to learn why the gun was designed the way it was, where it was made, things like that. When I did that research, I uncovered some interesting facts. During World War II, M1 carbines were manufactured by the Winchester Company, a gun maker. But they were also made in massive quantities by other companies. And we're talking hundreds of thousands of guns were made by Inland Manufacturing, which was a division of General Motors. Uh, they were made by Underwood Elliott Fisher. Some of you will recognize that as the typewriter maker. So a typewriter maker was manufacturing firearms. They were made by IBM. We know that as International Business Machines. Standard Products, which is a company that made gas caps. They were also made by the company named Rockola. Rockola made jukeboxes. If you don't know what a jukebox is, there are plenty of people here who can tell you. They were also made by the National Postal Meter Company. So that aroused my curiosity, so I began to dig. You know how it is when you get on the internet, you start going down the rabbit holes. And I learned that Chrysler, Ford, and General Motors all made tanks. And I learned that on February 22nd, 1942, on that specific day, all manufacturing of automobiles was ceased in the United States. They didn't make any more cars until the war was over. And those production lines were converted to the war effort. In less than three months, we stopped making plowshares and converted our efforts into making swords. It didn't take long. The war ended in August 1945, but it took until the 1948 and 49 model years before there were any new car designs for American consumers. Converting to a peacetime economy took a lot longer than converting to a war footing. It took us a lot longer to beat those swords into plowshares. It's hard work. Isaiah tells Ahaz that God will beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. But I wonder how much comfort Ahaz found in those words with his adversaries right outside the gates of Jerusalem waiting for the word to attack. Isaiah is, of course, talking about how God will someday change the world itself. The entire Bible is about transformation. God turns fear into comfort, hate into love, anxiety into faith, and war into peace. Yet even now, it seems easy to doubt that God is really up to that kind of transformation. We live in a world not terribly unlike that of Ahaz. We seem surrounded on all sides by adversaries. The messages of division are all around us. And I'm not just talking about bears versus Sooners or horns versus Aggies. We live in a culture divided by the media, divided by politics, divided by rich and poor, white and black, LGBTQ and cisgender, red and blue, us and them. We live surrounded by adversaries of doubt, of hate, of division, of chaos. How are we to navigate this crazy world? Isaiah says, there is one 
to come that brings hope, that will turn our swords into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks. But do you notice the specifics of what God does with the swords? God doesn't just bury those hatchets. God doesn't just destroy the implements of war. God transforms them. God redeems them. He turns instruments of war into instruments of agriculture. What was once meant for harm will now be used for feeding, for sustaining, for thriving. If Advent is about anything, it's about recognizing and preparing for the transformation of the world to come. It's about getting our spirits ready for what God's going to do. What God's going to do in the world and what God's going to do in human hearts the world over. So what does all this mean for us? How can God use us to change swords into plowshares? Does God want us to demonstrate outside nuclear weapons facilities? Does he want us holding signs at the nearest military base? I'm not the one to say whether God's calling you to do that or not, but I've got something a little closer to home, and shall I say, maybe even a little more powerful and a little more subversive to consider this morning. If God is in the business of changing the world one human heart at a time, and I believe God is, what about this? How many of you had a difficult time with your family last Thursday? You don't have to raise your hand. That was a rhetorical question. Thank you. Anybody here struggle with political discussions with your family and friend, close friends? You gather once or twice a year, and, or maybe you just had a white flag up, everybody had their white flag up and nobody's talking about it. That's really my family, just to be honest. Are family gatherings difficult sometimes because of the divisiveness in the culture? What about your social media? Do your Facebook or Twitter feeds somehow become a place of ugly contention? Have your words and the words of others sometimes turned into swords of contention? How might you turn those swords into plowshares? How might you transform those words into words of comfort and support? Words that lift up instead of tear down. What might God be saying to us about how we use our words? A few years ago, someone had the vision to develop what became a very popular way of helping folks, especially in the third world. Aid services discovered that with a small amount of money loaned to motivated individuals, they could do much good in many parts of the world. Micro-lending spread across the third world, and in 2018, there were over 240 million micro-borrowers worldwide. Micro-lending sought to change the world one person at a time. What if we work to change the world one conversation at a time? 
What if with the transformation of conversation after conversation, we could locally redeem words from their use as swords and retask them as plowshares? Proverbs says, a soft answer turneth away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt talks about the moral humility of stepping outside our own views and seeking to understand the views of others. Without going into an entire lecture that I'm certainly not in any way qualified to give, let me just say that both psychologists and neurobiologists have shown us that the way to bring people together is not to argue each other into submission, but to bring each other into community. I love to hear all the many examples of how scripture and science are telling us exactly the same things. What both scripture and science are telling us here is that in effect, we have to love each other into understanding. And that indeed takes a large dose of humility and a ton of understanding. It requires us to step out of the preconceptions that we have and build up our own ability to empathize. If you'd like evidence of what I'm describing, I present to you as Exhibit A, Fred Rogers, known the world over simply as Mr. Rogers. I'm sure we all know who Fred Rogers was, but for the sake of the sermon, let me give a short bio. Fred Rogers was a children's television actor, puppeteer, musician, and producer from Pittsburgh. When I Googled the word Fred, the first option was Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood aired on public television for 33 years, during which time Fred Rogers revolutionized children's television in the way the program approached the social and emotional